welcome to episode 1846 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Well, I am not someone who has a high degree of confidence in the existence of an afterlife, though I'd certainly like there to be one. <laughs> and What a start! <laughs> Is this not how you were expecting me to answer that question? No, but I can't wait to see where it's going. <laughs> well, even if the various religions are right and some part of us doesn't just turn to dust, I have no idea what that afterlife might look like. I wouldn't presume to say. But if it exists and if I were there and if I could choose the setting, I think it would be a sunny afternoon at Fenway Park featuring a pitcher's duel between Shohei Otani and Rich Hill, <laughs> because that was Nirvana for me. That yeah. was baseball Nirvana. Both of those guys dealing, matching zeros. Otani was awesome, of course, but Rich Hill was wonderful too for as long as he lasted. That was just like vintage Otani, vintage Hill going head to head, the most effectively wild matchup I could conceive of. And it delivered because how often do you think, oh, it's going to be a great pitcher's duel? And then it isn't. Someone doesn't hold up their end of the bargain. Someone gets knocked out early. It turns into a blowout. This was exactly what I wanted it to be. (laughs) So just a wonderful, thrilling baseball watching experience on Thursday afternoon. And I hope that I get to relive that someday (laughs) somehow. Yeah, it did. It had everything you want, right? I mean, not for Red Sox fans. I, no. I imagine they, <laughs> they came probably away. would have wanted a run at some yeah, point. Yeah, they probably came away disappointed, uh, feeling like the afternoon was was wanting in some respects. But I think that we're probably at the point where you just you see Otani doing what Otani is doing, and to a lesser degree, ever so slightly lesser degree, uh, see what Rich Hill was doing, and just. Look at it and say, we're along for the ride here. What a treat that we get to watch something like this unfold yeah. before us. Yeah, it was it was a pretty pristine experience of baseball. It was mm-hmm. just uh it was just really great, you know, when that like splitter is working. Oh my gosh. Good yeah. grief. <laughs> Good Two grief. of the most aesthetically pleasing pitchers yes. to watch when oh, Hill gosh. has his curveball going yeah. and they're both yelling after they release pitches. Otani was pretty fired up, and Hill does that usually. And then they were just both getting a ton of whiffs, like even on pitches in the zone. And Hill does that thing where he just like torques his whole body around just to get the movement and the speed that he does get on those pitches, which is a ton of speed at this point, but still a lot of movement. But mm-hmm. seven shutout innings for Otani, 11 strikeouts, no walks, what, three hits or something. Yeah. 81 strikes. In 99 pitches, yeah. 81 strikes, yeah. Oof. plus two hits, right? Plus he uh, knocked a ball off the green monster, knocked his own number down off the green monster. Just just the best. Like he hasn't even hit yet really this year. Yeah. He's been basically a league average hitter or just a tad better. And he is still 18th in combined fan graphs war now just because a little bit of war from the position player side and more war from the pitching side. So he's been pitching first this year as opposed to last year was maybe more offense first and maybe that'll get equalized at some point. But he almost can't help but be very valuable if he is good at even just one of those things. If he's just like par in the other one, then he's still going to accrue some value there and it's going to add up. But this was just both of those guys at the peak of their powers or at least Rich Hill's uh, late career powers obviously a big age differential and a big velocity differential there so different ways to be effective but it was a ton of fun 
I really appreciate games where you are able to observe the sort of the full range of goodness that a sport can offer. Because I think that one of the things that we both appreciate the most about baseball is, and one of the things that I think we can sometimes feel is at times a bit wanting in, in the modern game is just the sheer diversity of ways that one can be good. And that applies in all sorts of ways, right? It applies to the range of bodies that can be good at baseball. And it applies to the approaches that you can take and the different pitches you can throw. And there's just so much that we get to watch and it can it can all look really different and it can result in the same thing right it can result in a run it can result in an out like it it just offers this potpourri of options and so to have the contrast and then to be able to really worry about the Red Sox bullpen for a little while but that's a separate conversation you know it's it's just one of those games where you really get a lot of different looks and they're all really fun and engaging. Again, I'm sure that the the Red Sox fans listening to this wish that some of them had been a little less fun and a little less engaging on the Angels <laughs> side, but it's really a very special thing. And I, I don't know. I think we, we're pretty lucky to get to watch it. So that yep. part's cool. I just want the baseball boys I care about to do well. And yeah. And both doing well <laughs> in the same game on my screen. That yeah. was a lot of fun. 29 whiffs for Otani wow. in that start. I believe wow. that is the most by any starter this season. So maybe I don't have to die to relive this. Maybe there is another universe that I could visit where Otani and Hill would be facing off at all times. And I was thinking about this because I attended a screening for Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness earlier this week. Now, don't worry. No spoilers. Don't everybody run for the exits here. I will be careful and respectful and not spoil anything other than the fact that it's about the multiverse and there are multiple universes in the movie. I assume that you all gleaned that from the title. Sure. (laughs) the various trailers but i'm pleased to report this is a baseball movie it is not the first marvel or mcu movie to be a baseball movie we have talked about some before but this is a baseball movie in a really fun and entertaining and i think subtle way and there's just a one throwaway line in this movie that i feel like is for us for the baseball people and for director sam raimi so without giving anything away about who says this line or who this line is said to At one point, someone visits another universe in the multiverse, right? And someone in that universe is saying, you know who's the best? The 2003 Tigers. (laughs) That's it. That's the extent of the baseball in the movie as far as I could tell. But I love that. Just a little nod to baseball. This must be a Sam Raimi thing because Sam Raimi is a baseball fan and a Tigers fan. I know the movie was written by Michael Waldron, but I have to think that Raimi snuck this line in here. Of course, he directed For Love of the Game, the Billy Chappell story. But this line, this has to be a Raimi special. And what a better way to telegraph to a baseball fan that you are in another universe than to have someone there be talking about how great the 2003 Tigers were. And this harkened back to a discussion that we had in an episode last year, last July, episode 1718, which I actually titled MLB in the Multiverse of Madness. How about that? But we answered a a listener email from someone who wondered how we would consume sports differently or how we would watch baseball differently in a multiverse scenario. And we talked about a, a couple other stories that have multiverses and how people react to those situations. And I think I said, at least, that it would maybe make me less interested in baseball. Like we talked about, well, what would 
you want to know or not know about your team in the multiverse in these other universes? Or would it remove your interest in your own universe because you know that it's not singular, it's not special, that there's just an infinite variation of teams and seasons taking place in the multiverse? And this was a perfect illustration of that. So in Doctor Strange, in the Marvel multiverse, there is a universe where the 2003 Tigers are not one of the worst teams of all time, but in fact, one of the best teams of all time. They didn't go 43 and 119. Maybe they went 119 and 43. The character didn't specify, but who knows? So if you were to visit another universe and find out that everything you thought you knew was wrong, that the 2003 Tigers, in fact, were a wonderful team... How would that change your conception of baseball when you return to your own universe where the 2003 Tigers were terrible? I guess it would sort of depend on how emotionally invested in the in the change I was, right? And how sort of foundational to my understanding of the game it was. So like a, a team's fortunes being dramatically different, unless it, I guess unless it was the Mariners, which is the team that probably still has the most emotional resonance for me. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it would change all that much i think our conclusion yeah on the 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 multiverse question is that it would make us crazy and that we didn't (laughs) like the idea that it would be destabilizing but i guess the place where it would have the potential to make me feel pretty lousy like i didn't understand baseball like i was experiencing it in a fundamentally different way than everyone around me is that you know there are things that we like collectively recall that are important to to the way that we talk about the game now even when they are like many many years removed and that i don't know if a particular record falls into that category although gosh that team was so bad (laughs) so bad that team was so bad but like Mm -hmm. you know in a world where like nelson cruz makes a crucial catch in in the outfield in the playoffs like i would be like but he didn't do that and we all make fun fun of that team for that Mm-hmm. A lot of the time. So I don't know, like it would be a, it would be a really, I could see it not mattering and mostly just being confusing, sort of like quietly disorienting. Like, you know, the one time I traveled to London, I felt very disoriented there, even though the, the, you know, the people speak English because it was like, it was cloudy and everyone spoke English, but it sounded different. And so it felt like Seattle, but it really obviously wasn't. And Mm -hmm. there was the the similarity is what made it disorienting when, because of when the similarity broke down and I was expecting one thing and then like almost walking into traffic by looking the wrong way, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, instead. So I don't know. I'm trying to, I'm trying to orient myself in disorientation. That's a weird way of phrasing that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, as people might suspect, not everything goes smoothly in the multiverse. And I imagine that would not go so smoothly for you if you were to return from a scenario where the 2003 Tigers were a great team. Yeah, people think I I didn't know baseball. They'd be like, um, (laughs) bad news, Mag. Don't know if I could get as invested in my little dinky universe, knowing that all the others were out there, that every possible record had probably been achieved by the 2003 Tigers. But I love the idea that Sam Raimi is working through whatever yeah. lingering feelings he has about that team by just sneaking this line in. I had to, I like 
questioned. I was like, did I actually hear that? Because it's just, it's like in the background. It's, yeah. it's not like an important line. It's someone's just sort of saying it in the background, in the side. And so I did do a Twitter search and, and it looks like a few people have picked up on that and said like, I was the only one laughing in the theater when I heard that line. That line is like, that's very much, that's very targeted. That is a, a niche line. And I hope someone asks Remy about it, but I enjoyed that very much. And I think it provides a, an excellent segue here because you know what team started 3-22, and 22, the 2003 Tigers. <laughs> you know what other team has started 3-22, and 22, the 2022 Reds. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, is it the Cincinnati Reds? It is, ben? yeah. And the good news is, I guess there's another universe where the Reds are 22-3 and three this season, probably. So you can just pretend that you exist there instead. But we have talked about the Reds recently. I don't want to pile on here because all of their opponents are piling on them plenty as it is. If anything, I wanted to defend the Reds slightly. But first, I will share some numbers about how truly terrible the Reds are, which you did, I think, on our last episode. Yeah. But they got blown out and lost a couple more games. It's gotten since then. worse. Somehow, <laughs> yeah, it has somehow, somehow worse. it has gotten worse. <laughs> well, Jason Stark devoted much of his most recent column at The Athletic to just the historic nature of the Reds' slow start. That is underselling it to call it a slow start. This is not a slow start. <laughs> Wait a minute. I am sorry. A slow start is like a one for 20. Like that's yeah. a slow start. You'd well, be like, they did go one for 20 in terms I mean of as winning a, games. I mean but... as a batter at the plate. <laughs> yeah. That's a slow start. They're they're engaged in a fundamentally different project, yes. I would hazard. Yes. So they are tied with the 2003 Tigers for the worst start to a season. The 88 Orioles were two and 23. So there's a lot of 88 Orioles, 2003 Tigers on this list. Of course, they are, yes, they are one for their last 21. They are one in 20 in their last 20 <sighs> games. <laughs> and also, like, they haven't won two in a row. I guess that's not surprising because they've won two games. <laughs> but they are winless in games when they score in the top of the first. They have won zero games when trailing at any point. So they haven't had a comeback yet. They are 14 and a half games out of first place. Again, we're recording here on Friday afternoon. These numbers may have gotten worse by the time you hear this, but that is also historically significant. The most games behind 25 games into a season by an NL team since 1901 is 15 and a half by the 1907 Cardinals. Any MLB team, it's again the 88 Orioles. They were also 15 and a half back after 25 games. Their rotation has an 8.91 ERA, Jason pointed out, which is very dismaying. Like, I was looking at Hunter Green's ERA, which is 8.71. <laughs> that's yeah. like, that's par for the course. That's like average for the Reds rotation at this point. Yeah. Turns out if you can throw really hard, but fastball shape matters, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. And it's not as if they've been getting unlucky exactly, at least in terms of the results on the field. I mean, maybe a little bit, but they have been outscored by 87 runs already. And the only team that was outscored more than that in their first 25 games, the 2010 Pirates, who were at minus 89. The 1936 Browns were also at minus 87. So yeah, it's bad. It's really, really bad. However, I will defend them to this extent. So Jeff Passan had a two-tweet thread after their most recent loss, and here's what Jeff said. The Cincinnati Reds are now 3-22. and They have scored an NL worst 79 runs. If they doubled that, it would still be fewer runs than they've allowed, 166. 
Their 6.90 team ERA is a full two runs worse than the next worst team. Not nice at all. This is tanking at its absolute ugliest. And then he continued, to add insult to insult, the Reds have only a 16.5% chance at the number one overall pick in 2023 because of the new draft lottery. Even worse, teams cannot receive lottery picks in three straight seasons. So if Cincinnati doesn't try to win by 2025, the earliest it picks is seventh. So not disputing that the Reds are historically terrible. Not disputing that Reds' ownership sucks, (laughs) that they did tear down what was a competitive roster last season and then rubbed it in by saying, where are you going to go? But is this tanking at its absolute ugliest? Does this have anything to do with draft picks? This, to me, kind of comes back to the tanking versus banking slash nutting (laughs) conversation. I don't think this is tanking at its absolute ugliest. The results have been as ugly as they possibly could be. I think we've seen uglier instances of tanking. I think you could say that the Astros were tanking harder than this. You could probably say that the Orioles have been tanking harder than this. I don't think this is the most glaring example of tanking even if the results have been glaring. And I don't think it has anything to do with draft picks either. I don't know if Jeff was suggesting that they were trying to tank for draft picks, but I think we are past the era of teams trying to do that or that playing a major role in their considerations, which is why we came up with that term (laughs) or you came up with nutting. I tried to keep it cleaner with my suggestion, but yours has deservedly caught on, much to your dismay, it seems. But (laughs) what we were trying to get at there is the distinction between trying to be worse in order to gain draft picks and being bad because you can just bank your money that you get from revenue sharing and national broadcast deals and all the other revenue sources that teams have these days so that they don't have to depend on putting a competitive roster on the field and actually drawing fans. This is that more in my mind. This is whatever the Red said and Nick Kral said about having to bring the payroll in line with revenue. You know, whatever he said to justify whatever mandate I'm sure he was given by ownership. This is a little different to me. And no one anticipated this, right? I mean, no one was saying, oh, the Reds, they're the worst team of all time. They are going to start 2-23 or 3-22. and <laughs> Sorry, I don't want to make them even worse than they are. I thought they were just kind of a run-of-the-mill bad team, right? I, I didn't think they would be a contender or anything, but this is way beyond what I expected or what I think anyone expected, no? <sighs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if we really, if I really put it in terms of a specific record. It is definitely somewhat worse than what I was expecting, but... They sure did sell off a lot of their good players. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> like they sure they sure did do that, right? And they were not shy about having done that. And and it wasn't only that they rid themselves of good players. They also rid themselves of like the role players, right? Which suggested a, a complete disinterest in winning because uh, I mean, you need you need top-end talent, I think, to really compete against the other great teams in the NL. But they also, like, they got rid of Wade Miley. They were mm-hmm. like, we don't even want someone who eats innings at, like, a, a competent to good level. Like, they mm-hmm. were stripping out all the studs. They were selling copper wire. I don't know what people do when they strip stuff out of walls. But, you know, I don't know that I would have put it in a spe- in specific terms. I thought that they had the potential to be one of the worst teams in baseball. But I don't know that I necessarily thought they would be 
this bad, but maybe we should have because, like, you look at that roster and you're like, what do they? Who do they have? And this is right. one of the, this is one of the things about this practice that I I think is sort of quietly one of the the meanest is that we know it's bad for the fans, and we know that in this case they've been they've been insulted pretty badly. But it also puts it puts such a an eye and a lens on on a bunch of guys who like it they're not setting out to try to be the worst team in baseball. You know, the guys on the 25 man are not, this is not Mike Moustakis's plan, right? Mm-hmm. This isn't something that like, I don't know, Brandon Drury was like, let's go be terrible. Like these guys are trying to be respectable big leaguers. It's not mm-hmm. the fault of, oh God, some of the guys on this team though, like this isn't, Connor Overton's fault. Yeah. Some of the guys on the team aren't supposed to be on the team, even taking into account what they did, because they have been pretty banged up. Like, if you go to the baseball prospectus injured list ledger, they are leading what BP calls the hurt scale, which is the number of players on the IL. So right now, according to this, the Reds have 14 players on the IL, and the next closest team is 11. So they're at the top of that list. They're also leading in projected wins above replacement missed due to injury. So that's part of it. That's why it makes me think almost of the Diamondbacks last season. Right. Because when they went through their worst stretch, it was in large part at least because they were just missing a lot of players. Like they were down a rotation basically. Right. And so have the Reds been to some extent. Like. Some of the more important players like Luis Castillo and and others that they didn't trade away, and maybe they would have traded Castillo away if he had been healthy, so I don't want to give them credit. I think if he had been healthy, he would be in a different uniform right now. Right. So maybe we shouldn't credit them with the value that a healthy Castillo would have provided, but they have a lot of players hurt right now, and I think that makes the difference. That and maybe some bad luck and some just... Terrible starts that you wouldn't have anticipated, like Joey Votto going from being one of the best hitters in baseball in the second half of last season to not hitting at all. Yeah. Yeah. And who knows? Like, is there a psychological component to that? Joey Votto is a career red. He barely got a taste of contention. And then when the team was competitive, they trade away everyone. Probably doesn't improve his mental state. I don't know that that has anything to do or much to do with why he hasn't hit. But just saying it could have some sort of effect. It's got to be demoralizing, certainly for the players who are holding holdovers from that roster but i think that makes the difference between just run-of-the-mill lousy team and historically terrible i don't think it necessarily goes from the worst example of tanking ever and guess what they're not going to get the draft picks that they were trying to get which i doubt really factored into their thinking at all yeah i I think they they took themselves from contenders, potential contenders, to non-contenders. And that's maybe what matters, even more so than whether you are a bad non-contender or a historically terrible non-contender. I think that matters to some extent. No one wants to be embarrassed the way that the Reds have been embarrassed this season so far. But the important thing is that they basically voluntarily said, yes, we had a competitive team last year. We could have brought back those players or even supplemented them. And instead, we just decided to move ourselves from the competitive category to the non-competitive category. So that was bad. And we certainly gave them grief for that. And they deserved it. 
However, <laughs> I'm just saying it's not as if they tore things down this far. There were more studs left. There were some coverings over the studs, <laughs> at least when the season started. Like looking at the preseason fan graphs playoff odds or, or projections for win totals, right? They were projected before the season started to go 76 and 86, right? right? I mean, not good. They had a lower than 10% chance to make the playoffs, but no one bats an eye at 76 wins. If they right. were on a 76-win pace right now, we wouldn't be talking about them. So whether that was uh, more optimistic than it should have been, I mean, maybe that's the difference between 70 and 76 or something. I'm just saying, like, we've seen Orioles teams. We've seen that Tigers team. We've seen Astros teams. These teams are winning 40-something or 50-something. Now, the Reds may end up there. I mean, they're on pace for like 30 <laughs> at this point yeah. but, or less, right? 20 more like. They may end up there, but I don't know that that was the plan or that that was what they expect or that that was what anyone else expected. So I guess I'm defending them to the extent that, yes, it was truly terrible what they did to that roster. And yet... Things have gone horribly wrong. So unless you believe that there was some kind of karmic penalty that they incurred by <laughs> deciding to tear down the roster to the extent that they did, and now the baseball gods are punishing them by rubbing their faces in it, I just don't think it's necessarily the most egregious or glaring example of tanking, which I think is what I said about the Diamondbacks last year, too. As terrible as they were, I don't think that was necessarily the most reasonable explanation for how their season would turn out. That was like a 10th percentile outcome. Yeah. of what was going to be a pretty lousy season to start. Well, and I think that we probably were building into our expectations the fact that, you know, even though they are not a good roster, like they they play in a like they play in a division with the Pirates, for instance, right? Yeah. And there are even among the, you know, teams like there's vulnerability to that Cubs roster. And so mm -hmm. I think part of what we were probably either explicitly or or sort of mentally building into that projection for ourselves, not the the fangrass projections, but was the idea that like, well, they can probably like go beat up on the pirates a little bit. You sure. know, they can probably take some from the Cubs. Like they have within the division a soft underbelly that they could poke at, even as they are also a soft underbelly that other teams in that division can poke at. But it is pretty gnarly. I mean, I think that when you're a fan of a team that's going through this, I think it is useful for us as analysts and even for team for fans of teams to like think about the different kinds of tanking, right? Like to have an appreciation for the full topology of tanking. But <laughs> yeah. I don't know that your experience of it is all that different if you're you know, in the midst of uh, a, a tank job that is going to end up working, right? Like we, we can think about the Astros that way, even though the kind of tanking they were doing was it was different than what the Reds are up to or what the mm -hmm. Pirates are up to. I think it feels pretty crummy when you're in the middle of it. It feels crummy when you're in the middle of what we might deem like a process-driven tank that isn't necessarily working that hasn't necessarily yielded the team that was expected like the Phillies mm -hmm. although you know it might be indelicate of me to talk about Phillies failures today <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> boy and you know and then there's there's what the Reds are doing which I think in some ways you're right is is much more similar to the Pirates but with like 
a more of an fu from ownership directly to the fans in some ways. Like I don't think that yeah they that, verbalized it. I right. mean, they said it out loud. But I would have thought the Pirates were better than the Reds coming into the yes. season, and that what they did was more egregious. Like maybe a little less noticeable just because the Pirates were bad last year too, yeah. whereas the Reds were pretty decent last year. So that made it more glaring that they moved themselves out of the contender category right. into the non-contender category. But the Pirates were in the non-contender category because they've been doing this sort of thing for years right. if anything to a more extreme extent but they haven't started a season three and 22 right and you know and you look at their roster and you're like well you know it sure stinks that like o'neill cruz is in triple a but also like brian hayes is good and yeah. brian reynolds is, is uh, stinking in triple a yeah, by the way but <laughs> i know it hasn't been going great yeah. you know but you you look at that pirates roster and you're like there are a surprising number of like competent and actually quite good big leaguers on this team so yeah, I think your experience coming in is is a little bit different, but it doesn't feel, I don't know that it feels meaningfully different to you when you're a fan as you're going through it. I think that it is easier to intellectualize the experience and sort of distance yourself from it emotionally if you have confidence that it is being done, both that it is being done in the service of winning eventually and that the approach to that is going to end up being successful. Like, I think it probably feels very white knuckly on the roller coaster if you're like, all right, we're they're saying the right stuff, but I don't know if they can do it. So I hope that mm-hmm. this thing like stays on the tracks, right? But yeah. I don't know that your your experience as you're sitting there you know, with your $12 beer and your hot dog is like that different if it's something like Cincinnati, if it's something like what the Astros did, you know, before their current, you know, good team, if it's something like the Pirates are doing. I think it just, you know, it sucks to suck. Like it's not a fun experience. (laughs) And I think the the contours of that can can vary, but I think the, the overall vibe of it ends up being pretty similar, which is like, man, I Mm -hmm. sure... I'm not going to probably get to watch my team win today. And that, I think, is the that's the worst spot to be in. You know, we've talked about this a lot about sort of what is important to your understanding of your fandom as you're moving through a season. And I think having the ability to look at the team and say, well, they might be in this thing in the broader sense is really important, right? It feels good to be like, I might be watching this team in October. That could happen, even if your team is sort of on the fringes of contention that they would, you know, have the possibility is like really exciting. But on on the base or more everyday level, like being able to go to the ballpark and say, well, we could win today. Like that's pretty important because otherwise, why are you going to go? Despite mm-hmm. what their ownership group thinks, like there's other stuff to do. Like you could read a book or watch a movie or watch yeah. the NBA postseason or the nhl postseason you can watch that for a lot of the summer because gosh they go on forever they really do they last forever uh, go see dr strange and (laughs) daydream about a world where the reds are good but Mm. i think green struggles are sort of emblematic of this to me because like we probably praised them a bit if anything i mean we lumped them in with all the teams that were promoting their top prospects and putting them on opening day rosters instead of doing service time manipulation stuff and here's green who's been a part of the problem you wouldn't have expected him to be this bad he has the great stuff and throws super hard and does miss bats but he's given up 10 home runs in like 20 innings i mean it's been ugly who could have thought 
that would happen. So that to me is like, well, they gave Green a chance and he should have been good. <laughs> there were reasonable expectations for him to be a, a valuable contributor there. I guess he's maybe not ready. Maybe he's had terrible luck, whatever it is. But that is not something I envisioned. If anything, I would have said, all right, well, good for them that they're putting Hunter Green in the opening day rotation. <laughs> and that has just backfired horribly thus yeah. far. So it's it's really ugly. I don't know which has been uglier, the hitting or the pitching. I mean, take your pick. It's like they have a, a 66 WRC+, plus, the next lowest team the Red Sox and Royals are at 79. That's a pretty big gap. But then you look on the pitching side, yeah. they have a 167 ERA minus. Higher is bad for ERA yeah. minus. The next highest is the Nats at 126. I mean, the difference between the yeah. Reds and the next worst team in either of these categories is like the difference between the next worst team and, you know, some team way up the leaderboard. Even if you look at FIP minus, the range is a little smaller, but it's, you know, 132 they're at, and the next highest team is at 120. I mean, just big gaps. Like, they're getting just lapped by the league. So yeah. it has been very, very ugly. I hope that things will look up. They almost have to. <laughs> the, the 1988 Orioles, uh, they started the season even worse than this, and, you know, they ended that season 54 and 107 which means that they played at a considerably better clip over the rest of the season. I guess it's not encouraging to say, hey, Reds fans, you could win 54 games this year, but that is still in play. Anyway, I wanted to mention this just uh, as a way of, of giving us a little snapshot of the standings here and the changes in the playoff odds since the start of the season, because it has been a month now. It is May 6th as we speak. The season started on May 7th, so we have those preseason playoff odds generated on April 6th, so we can do a direct month-to-month comparison. And the Reds' playoff odds, they're not among the biggest changers because they didn't have great playoff odds to begin with. But uh, their playoff odds, pretty non-existent now, as you might imagine. They are down to 0.1%. So, hey, Fangraph's still saying there's a chance, so that's something. But... (laughs) They are down at about eight percentage points, it looks like. The biggest losers here in terms of playoff odds percentage are two teams in the East, the Red Sox and the Phillies. So the Phillies are down about 28 percentage points. They now have roughly a one in three chance to make the playoffs. And the Red Sox are down almost 32 percentage points and are just under a 30% chance to make the playoffs. They have roughly the same records, 11 and 15 in the Phillies case, 10 and 16 in the Red Sox case. So these teams are are not off to Reds-like starts, but they are off to pretty disappointing starts and in competitive divisions where normally, like, we don't obsess over the standings. We don't even look at them this early in the season, but... When you're in a division where you know it's going to be a tight race and you get off to the worst start and you have losses like the Phillies just had in their last game, which you were just alluding to, where the Mets came back from down seven to one in the ninth. Oh, boy, it is not looking great for either of those teams. And, you know, I guess it has been 
the problems that you might expect with the Phillies to some degree of, yes, the, the defense, yes, the bullpen, the same old refrains that we've had. It's not just that, but you look at just how well the Mets have started the season and the teams in between the Phillies and the top of that division now, and it's going to be tough. And, and the Red Sox, I, I didn't have particularly high hopes for going into the season, but the Yankees have been running roughshod over the league. The Blue Jays and the Rays have both been very good as expected. So yeah. that was going to be an uphill climb to begin with. And now it's an even steeper uphill because they have dug themselves a hole. Yeah, they were not a team that I think we had maybe a handful of the Fangraph staff select Boston as a postseason team. I did not expect their bullpen to be quite as bad as it has been, but it has sure been pretty not good. So there's that piece of it. And then with Philly, you know, I have to issue a correction, Ben, about Philly. Uh I said I had no notes about the (laughs) no defense, all vibes. Yeah. But I've watched some of this Phillies team and... I mean, I think they should have kept all the vibes. But the maybe vibes aren't great either. <laughs> they maybe wanted a little bit of the defense. Maybe that would have helped to have, you know, just all of the vibes and some defense. You know, yeah. the the balance is, is maybe a little off. I mean, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have anticipated necessarily that, like, that outfield would be without Bryce Harper. Right. And so that, you know, and that he would be relegated to DH duty because of his elbow. But maybe I should have, you know, you got to account for injury, Ben, coming into yes. the season. And uh, you're right. Like, there's been no defense. And now the vibes, they're not they're not the best vibes. Some of no. them, some of the vibes are pretty bad. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and the vibes will be worse when you have another team that is off to one of the best starts, right. that being the Mets, who are 19-9 and nine as we speak, and they are up almost 22 percentage points in playoff yeah. odds. So they are not quite the biggest gainer. In fact, the biggest gainer, the Los Angeles Angels, are yeah, up 25 look at Angels. <laughs> percentage points still in first place. Yeah, We talked about them being in first place last week, and I was like, okay, I got to mention this while they're in first place because right. that's not going to last, <laughs> but yeah. they are. They still are. They're 17 and 10, and right now they have a 70% chance to make the playoffs, yeah. according to Fangraphs. How about that? Yeah. They're still not favored to win the division, but- no. Things are looking up for them, at least wildcard-wise. The Astros are off to a a decent start, too. They're 15 and 11. The Mariners, uh, not not going so well for them i guess no there's been a little yeah. slide a little uh, a little a little slide you know how i was like oh i gotta mention how they are you know they're just they're bang on their mm-hmm. um their base runs record yeah. and uh, they're they're bang on their pythag and now we're in an interesting spot with them because uh, according to their pythag pet expectation they're actually two games worse than uh-huh. they should be and their base runs record has them two games better than they right. should be. So that's creative. And their run differential has shrunk to a meager plus seven. But it is still positive. I don't know that I could say the same for the fun differential. No. It might be negative yeah. at this point. I think the tank is running low there. Their so. playoff odds have barely changed, though, because this is basically what they were expected to be right. by the yeah. playoff odds. Right? They funny. were projected to be an 80-win team, and they're 12 and 14, yeah. and they're not that far from that pace. Yeah. But yeah, the Angels, I just, I mean, I've been Them watching angels. a lot of the Angels, as I generally do, and they have looked good, even with Otani not being fully himself offensively. So... That division, it's winnable. I would still expect the Astros to take it ultimately, but 
there's a better chance than there's been for the Angels to make the playoffs in, in some shape or form than there has been for years, I would say. Well, and I think that if you're looking for a reason to feel optimistic about them, no, this isn't necessarily going to sustain itself. And I think that you look at that staff and you can still appreciate the injury risk that is attendant with some of their guys. And so this could all fall apart very quickly. But I think that we had noted, you, I, everyone who's paid attention to baseball the last 10 years had been like, it sure would be nice if they had some pitching. It sure would be nice if that Angels team had a rotation that worked. And right now, at least by our version of war, it, you know, they have the fifth most valuable rotation in baseball. They have a staff ERA of 348 and a staff FIP of 349. And so, like, it is encouraging to see them, even for just a month, like, put it together in a way that is, uh, is, you know, been useful. Now, mm -hmm. a not small percentage of that is Otani, surely, but they have been able to put together like competent outings from their big league staff and their bullpen sort of middle of the pack right now. So, you know, yeah. if you combine that with like a good, you know, who knows if, if Taylor Ward will ward it the whole year, <laughs> but mm -hmm. it sure is nice that on a team where we have also decried sort of the lack of complementary pieces around their stars that at a moment where Otani is, as you noted, just kind of a league average guy that there are actually some role players around their yep. core three who are like, that's okay. I got you, Shoei. Like, what a nice thing. Couldn't say that last year. Right. Yeah. And it's uh, some of the supplementations that they made over the offseason. Syndergaard, Lorenzen. Now, those guys, their peripherals are not so hot. <laughs> They've both struck out about five per nine. But... They have been good so far, or at least successful. Otani has looked great when he's been on the mound. Detmers, I still believe he's kind of going to put it together at some yeah, point. I think and it could Patrick be okay. Sandoval is just good. Like, yeah, he's just, he's just a, a good. He's just a, a, good, he's just a good pitcher. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so exciting. <laughs> and that bullpen is deeper than it was. So yeah. yes, given their better than expected start, there's a reasonable chance that we might be seeing Mike Trout and Shohei Otani and Co. in the playoffs. <laughs> I'm not not banking on that, but it's looking up. It's looking possible. And yeah, I mean the Mets. Even without Jacob deGrom, they have the fifth best pitching staff in yeah. terms of war thus far. So really, it's been a, a bi-coastal act. I, I know there was some fun fact the other day about the fact that the New York and Los Angeles teams were yes. all leading their respective divisions for the first time ever, I think, at the same time. And you would expect some of those teams to be good. Obviously, the Dodgers, 16-7, and seven, yawn, you know, doesn't even make you blink. But you look at the Yankees, and they reeled off, what, 11 wins in a row, yep. and their pitching has been great. The offense has been good enough. Uh, like, I still, I thought coming into the season that the Blue Jays were the best team in that division. I don't know that I have changed my mind, but there's not a ton of daylight between the Yankees and the Jays or the Rays and the Jays or the Yankees and the Rays or whatever configuration you want there, which is why it's so tough for the Red Sox right now, because those other three teams are off to great starts and the Red Sox have the same record as the Orioles, which is never a good sign. No. Anyway... The Mets just doing it without DeGrom and having these like big, exciting comeback wins like the Mets in the past. Maybe they would have been the ones blowing that 7-1 lead in the ninth, yeah. and now they're the ones coming back to win that one. So good vibes with the Mets these days, even missing an important part of that roster. So 
They and the Angels are the ones who have their playoff odds up by the most, and Red Sox and Phillies have suffered the steepest declines, and everyone else is somewhere in the middle here. I guess we talked at some length about the White Sox the other day, and I know that Dan Zimborski just blogged about them. So they are 11-13. and 13. They're down by about 14 percentage points of playoff odds, and I think they are just neck and neck with the Twins now for division odds. Yeah. Just because the Twins are off to an excellent start. They're 15 and 11, so they have upped their playoff odds by basically as much as the White Sox have lowered theirs. So it's been a yin and yang thing going on with those guys, and we talked a bunch about the White Sox and maybe the lack of depth there and maybe Carlos Rodon and other moves that they could have made. But as Dan pointed out, like they should be aggressive because uh, they're in a dogfight now. A yeah. lot of people thought they might be able to just walk to this division title the way that they did last year. And now, no, it's a, it's a scrap and, and they've had a bunch of injuries, but so have the Twins, so have a lot of teams. Yeah. Things just have not gone well. Although, as Dan pointed out, like uh, maybe they have a, a second base hole with Robinson Cano's name on it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if they might still have a second base hole with Robinson Cano's name in there, but worth a shot, possibly. They're just in that position where it's like, well, we better upgrade. We better be aggressive. Whatever's available, we better go for it. Well, and it'll be interesting to see like the, you know, the twins are now dealing with the the Carlos Correa finger injury. Right. He has a mm-hmm. finger injury. We're going to get a look at Royce Lewis as a result of that. Royce uh-huh. Lewis is coming up. So that's exciting for him, given his own injury history, that he's in a position to make his big league debut. So good for mm-hmm. Royce Lewis. But I imagine that that will have some, uh, would have some bearing on, you know, the effectiveness of the Twins offense. But yep. I mean, he's no Jeremy Pena, but right. he's pretty good. Oh, yeah. man. Weird. Baseball's weird. I like Uh it. But I think like we have had people write about like others have written about the real revelation for for Minnesota has just been that rotation, which we were all kind of iffy about coming into the offseason, even with some of the additions that they've made. And, you know, you have gray pitching well and you have a revitalized looking Chris Paddock and like that rotation is good. So You know, who needs Carlos Correa? I mean, the Minnesota (laughs) Twins absolutely do. But, (laughs) you know, it is not as if the sort of shape of their wins has been entirely reliant on like blowing teams out with an incredible offense and then just scraping by on the pitching side like that rotation has been really good so far. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I did want to mention uh, just a couple other teams, I guess the. Cardinals and the Brewers have been the beneficiaries of the Reds' terrible start. Playoff odds-wise, the Brewers oh are 18-8. and eight. They are up uh, almost 14%, basically a lock to make the playoffs. Of course, they were favored to win that division to begin with, but they've looked good. In the NL West right now, it's like the 2005 NL East. Every team is 500 or above, yeah. including the Diamondbacks. Including those D-backs. Look at them D-backs. The at yeah. 500, but... The Giants started well, have scuffled lately, and they're so, pretty hurt right now, though. Yeah, right. So Which you know, help. I mean, that was uh, one of the concerns <laughs> about yeah. them. Would they be able to stay healthy? Yeah. Thus far, not so much. No. They've been fourteen eleven. I mean, they're three games back. They're in fourth place, but three games back, and right. one of the teams ahead of them, of course, is the Rockies. But it's funny the projections were low enough on the Giants. I think they were projected to be an eighty five win team. That getting out to a fourteen and eleven start, even though they're in fourth place. They have actually raised their playoff odds. However, the Dodgers are 
doing Dodgers things. They're winning at basically a 700 clip and the Padres are right behind them. And I sort of expected those two teams to be at the top of that race and it's shaping up to be another good race. I know it was shaping up to be a good race between those two teams and the Giants last year. And then the Padres just completely collapsed out of it. But I suspect that maybe they won't this year. You know, they have Clevenger back. Gore has established himself like that's looking like a pretty strong roster and they will have Fernando Tatis at some point this season, which is uh, about as big a reinforcement as you could ask for. So that is shaping up to be at least an exciting two team race. And then the Braves have been the other team, along with the Phillies, that have suffered from the Mets strong start and the Braves have not been off to a great start themselves. They're 12 and 15 And so they're down almost 18 percentage points. That is one of the biggest losses in playoff odds. So I feel like, you know, I kept picking the Mets to win this division year after year, and then they would somehow find a way not to. And then finally this year, I was just like, okay, look, Atlanta won the World Series last year. Like, am I really going to pick the Mets again? Someone always makes me pick these things. And this year I just said, fine, Braves, like you've won it however many years in a row. I will just give it to you this year. And so far, looking like I bailed on the Mets a a year early. I mean, I expected them to make the playoffs still, but they are sitting fairly pretty right now. Not that any Mets fan is going to feel confident at this point in the season, but they have uh, built up a nice little lead there. And the Marlins, meanwhile... They're just chugging along at 12 and 13, and the pitching has been really impressive at times, but the hitting, I guess, just hasn't been good enough. I mean, the hitting has not been terrible. They have a a 106 WRC+. Yeah. So maybe they are playing a little under their heads right now, because if they could be even a league average offensive team... You'd think that that would be enough, but I guess they are are down at 21st in pitching war, right? Which, uh, I mean, we've certainly talked about the arms at the top of that rotation and how talented they are. I guess it is uh, partly a a bullpen issue in the Marlins case because they are 24th in bullpen war and they are 19th in starting rotation war, which is not where I would expect them to be. So. Kind of weird. And kind of weird. Maybe, maybe that makes you more optimistic about the Marlins because you've got to figure that the pitching will end up being better. Coming around that. at some point, yeah. Yeah. So I would not count them out of, of making some noise, at, at least in the wild card race, but it has not been a, a strong start for them. No, although it has been really delightful to watch um, Jazz Chisholm being just yep. like as good as he has been. I, While you were talking, I dropped age as a column into our leaderboards. That's one of the fields you can bring in as a custom leaderboard. And I sorted this leaderboard by age, mostly because I just wanted to like once again, sing the praises of Wonder Franco. So we're going to do that. But before I do, I want to, I want to highlight um, Jesselm Jr. Because like, you know, there, there was all this, there was always all this promise with him and it was a matter of whether he was going to be able to, to sort of put all the impressive tools together. And right now, Jazz is hitting 324, 373, 635. He has a 184 WRC plus. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'd like to nominate him as someone who should be, he needs to do this for longer. But, like, he should be a main character. I think that he should become a main character. He has to do it for longer, but he is, I think yeah. he is in the the probationary period of being <laughs> a main character because he is so much fun to watch. He yeah. is just himself every day on the field which is great and he's hitting really well right now at a time when 
like you said, the Marlins kind of need him to. So I, I'd like to, I'd like to nominate Jazz Chisholm Jr. as a, yeah. as a main character. And then I would like to highlight that Wander Franco is still just twenty one, and he's so good so at baseball. But oh my <laughs> god, he's so good at baseball. Yeah. And it's just, I know I've said it on this before. I know I've said it on this podcast before that we were so excited about all these young guys who were coming up, and how you know we were seeing this wave of promotions, and we had to see how all the young guys did. And there's there's Wander at twenty one, yeah. and he's younger than all of them. Yep. It's just the, it's just really the best, and so I'm here to appreciate that this this leaderboard is you know it's littered with a lot of really good performances, and then a lot of guys who you know need to round into form more. But um, there he yeah. is, there he's he's right there, and you know J- young Jeremy Pena, only 24. Yep. Mm. Wander Franco has a 10.5 percent strikeout rate. Yeah. Nick Madrigal has a 16.4 percent strikeout rate. What's up with that? What What's is up on, with Nick? that? Madrigal, you're not supposed to strike out Weird. that many times. Weird. That's, That's like, he's, he's exceeded his strikeout quota for the season. Yeah, he doesn't get to strike out even one more time. <laughs> yeah. He is he struck maxed out. He uh, 17 times in 215 plate appearances last year. He's already struck out 12 times in 73 plate appearances this year. And it's not as if he's gotten good results otherwise. He hasn't hit for any power or anything. So if he were selling out for power or something, I'd say, well, that's disappointing. But at least it's working for him now. It is not working for him. And also, he's not as much fun because he is not the super low strikeout guy anymore. So that's kind of disappointing. But uh, I did not mean to give the Yankees offense short shrift before because uh, I praised their pitching. Their offense is also just the best in baseball to this point. So it's not bad when you are leading the majors in WRC plus and also you are leading at least the American League in pitching war there's got to be some part of Brian Cashman I know he's been doing this forever and probably is not like I told you so anymore but maybe some little bit of him is probably like I told you so just because like all of the uproar about what he did not do over the offseason and look some of that stuff it it could come back to bite them still before the end of the year but Thus far, at least, it's like, hey, who needed Freddie Freeman? Have you seen this Anthony Rizzo guy? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and did we really need Carlos Correa? We have the best offense in baseball. So things are working out. They may not have gotten the most marquee names over the winter, but couldn't have asked for a better start to the season. They even got everyone vaccinated and everyone made that nice trip thing. to Toronto. Yeah. yeah and what a good uh, thing. I think Aaron Judge had some homers and some big hits in Toronto, and so maybe he has uh, whatever reluctance he or Rizzo or or whoever the holdouts were had at this point. Uh, They are certainly not suffering from any impaired performance, I would say, to this point in the season. Which (laughs) we should say we do not know for sure the status Mm -hmm. of some of these guys before they went to Toronto. They were vague. Yes, they were very vague. Yes, Legal uh, insists that we... (laughs) But if anyone had uh, concerns, uh, if they had concerns... Whoever, yeah. whoever the holdouts were, let's just say, <laughs> yeah. whoever was taking time to do their own research yeah. and uh, not wanting to, to answer either way about their vaccination uh. status, if part of their reluctance was some concern that it might impair their performance on the field, that uh, concern, I would imagine, has been allayed to this point. <laughs> so they are really raking and pitching well, too. Anyway. 
those are, I, I guess, the big teams that have moved their fortunes one way or another. So uh, congrats to the hot starters and condolences to the slow starters and also the Reds who are in their own category. I feel (laughs) as if we need to do one thing before we move on from this idea, which is we should probably talk about Nolan Arenado a little bit, don't you think? Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. I just wanted to point out that Nolan Arenado is good. (laughs) (laughs) not a new development but not a new development but like when you're looking at the top of our so like right now Manny Machado also good is leading among qualified hitters is leading the Fangraphs uh, war leaderboard for position players at 2.6 you don't give him enough credit Machado amazing Machado definitely amazing and you know he's hitting 374 447 657 he has a 215 WRC plus he's already hit seven home runs he also has a 411 BABIP which we might imagine will not sustain itself but you know but there's Manny Machado being Manny being good which is excellent for the Padres it must feel so nice for them to be where they are after the the just hellacious year they had last year but there's Nolan Arenado Nolan Arenado is second in Fangraph's war 348, 426, 674, 214 WRC+. Plus. He's playing his usual superlative defense. He has a, a much more normal BABIP, which whatever. But, uh, you know, he also has seven home runs. So I just, mm-hmm. I feel like we should note that Nolan Arenado remains good at baseball and that he has, you know, really sort of risen to the occasion after that, you know, initial year in St. Louis where he was fine. He was a good good player you know when you play defense like nolan arenado you always are going to have some margin for error when you're hitting like when you have a 113 wrc plus which is respectable but not amazing but right now he's just really uh locked in and hitting the snot out of the ball so i would say nolan arenado still good at baseball we have not yet reached the point of stat stabilization because mike trout is currently fourth but Mm -hmm. i will i will take a leaderboard that has Manny, Nolan Arenado, Jose Ramirez, Mike Trout, and Aaron Judge as, as its top five. That's, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it's a cool sport that we get to watch. It's yeah. really it's really pretty delightful that, that we get to, to do that. Yeah. Who would you guess, Ben, among qualified hitters has the highest strikeout rate right now? We're going to do some fun. We're going to oh. do some rapid fire. Are you ready? Goodness. Who has you won't guess. Strikeout? It's fine. <laughs> okay. You won't oh, guess. It's all right. It's Tell Fran me. Mill Reyes. Ah, okay. All I mean, right. like, you yeah. might guess that he strikes out a little bit. Guess, but he does strike out that. a lot. Yeah. Do you know who is walking the most right now? This will not surprise you. It's Soto. I it's Juan Soto, 19.2% <laughs> of the time. Max mm-hmm. Muncy up there with 18.7. Good yeah. for you. You bringing up uh, uh, Machado and, and Arnado reminds me that I wrote an article for Grantland back in June 2015 titled, Who You Got? Baltimore's Manny Machado or Colorado's Nolan Arenado? And Did you I guess pick those was... names because they rhymed kind of in the in the headline scheme? <laughs> I don't remember why I picked them. <laughs> I guess uh, they were being compared at that point. It was sure. like the Soto versus Acuna yeah. of that era was yeah. Machado versus Arnado. I don't really remember if I, I picked a side, but I guess there was no wrong answer there <laughs> because no. they're still awesome seven years later. Yeah. So there's that. I guess it looks like I took Machado to the extent that I sure. chose a side. I cited some Zips projections and rest of career war. Machado was higher to that point. Where are they career war-wise to date, if you could tell me that? I remember that there was an article I, I read over the offseason or maybe in spring training about how Arenado had like made some swing changes or tinkered with his approach at the plate after last year. And I was like, hey, you hit. 
34 dingers, you know, most players said uh, they have a season like that. They're not going to go back to the drawing board. But Noren Arnato, he has high standards. And so he changed some things. And evidently those changes have paid off because, uh, yeah, he and Machado have both been fantastic. But Let's to date, see. I guess so, Arnato is at 40.6 Fangraphs yes, for a lifetime. and Manny's at 41.8. Oh, man. But Could not be closer. Wow. I think that didn't Machado come up? He came up in 2012 and Arenado yes. came up in 13, 2013. Right? So let, yes. me, let me just do this from 2013 on. <laughs> it's exactly the same. Exactly the same, really? <laughs> from 2013 to 2022, they've both been worth exactly 40.64. <laughs> Their WRC wow. plus is separated by three points. What a, do- oh, what a cool... Oh my yeah. gosh! I'm gonna we're it's gonna great. we're gonna enjoy this for a second. <laughs> I didn't realize that the stolen base gap was as big as it is. That is kind of surprising to me. So, Arenado has hit two eighty nine, three forty six, five eighty three. Machado has hit two eighty nine. 342, 493. Arenado has a 369 Woba. Machado has a 353 Woba. Arenado, 120 WRC plus. Machado, 123. But yeah, they are bang (laughs) on from a war perspective from 2013 to 2022. Yeah. And Machado's uh, a little over a year younger than Arenado. So you can factor that into the rest of career projections. But they're both having Hall of Fame careers. So it's just, it's been a joy to watch them. And it's great when you have that that kind of like head-to-head players at the same position yeah. sort of comparison, like one of those great baseball debates where there's no wrong answer. And that debate is still just as valid in 2022 as it was in 2013 or 2015 when I wrote that article. Because so often, you know, it turns into like a Harper versus Trout situation right. where they, well, in that case, like they've both been fantastic and probably both also on Hall of Fame kind of careers, but Trout has been otherworldly. I was looking at their wars when they both hit their uh, 10 years since promotion or major league debut milestone lately and you know harper's been amazing he has uh fulfilled expectations i would say and yet trout has been like almost twice as valuable over the life of their careers because he's just been that good but yeah it's, it's really nice when you can have like a, a Willie mickey and the duke kind of conversation yeah you know and players overlap like that and we've got a a lot of like who you gots among the main characters today yeah. so it's wonderful it's wonderful. It's a pretty uh, it's a pretty special thing. All right. A couple follow-ups here from listeners to recent discussions that we've had. We talked about how to define the modern era of baseball, what that would mean. Listener Nathan said, love the discussion on how to define the modern era. Would it make sense to define it as the earliest season in which an active player debuted? It builds the rolling quality into the definition and ties it to who is currently playing the game. So that would be what Albert Pujols, Mm -hmm. I guess, uh, started in 2001. So the modern era is 2001 on until Albert Pujols retires. I liked the suggestion very much. I think I said so in in email because it does it. It's going to result in some sort of buffeting about of the modern era because what what's the next most next most distant is that the right way to say that <laughs> debut after Pujols like who's the next mm. longest tenured active player that's a better Pujols teammates that's a better way let's see Wainwright was 2005 oh, yeah. Yachty was 2004 maybe it's Yanni who else is uh Rich Hill was 2005 sure. so somewhere around that range 
Oliver Perez was 2002, but yeah. maybe maybe he's out too. Yeah, he's. I don't think he's currently on a an mm-hmm. active roster. So, you know, there there can be some some jumping around. I guess it it does leave itself vulnerable to that because when you have these like long really long tenured guys once they all retire then we're gonna like zoop up a little bit but i i like this i think that it is a useful sort of mental framing device for what is the modern era it's like you know what are what are the who are the guys who like most baseball fans over the age of 10 like remember playing right yeah that's Mm kind of what that accomplishes i I like that i think that's good yeah, that works as a definition. I still don't feel the need to define it. To me, modern is just right now, basically, and anything else, I'm just going to specify what time frame I mean. But if you're going to use some sort of hard definition, then I like that one because it does build in that variability and it moves forward with you as time proceeds. Okay, a couple responses we got to our skeuomorph discussion. The idea of a skeuomorph, something like a... a a fragment that is left over in the baseball lingo, in the baseball lexicon that originated with something that is no longer really in the game or no one even really remembers how that came about, but we still say it. And of course, in other fields, a, a skeuomorph, a physical object or something you see on a screen, like when you go to your phone and there's a, a calculator icon and it looks like a, a physical calculator that you would have held that kind of remnant that we bring along in a design sense. So a few responses and suggestions for baseball skeuomorphs. Raymond Chen says, perhaps one of the most important terms in the game, strike, is itself a skeuomorph. The job of the batter was to strike, i.e. hit balls. Batters would just stand there waiting forever for a pitch they liked. Since the balls were just lobbed in, the rules implicitly assumed that every swing resulted in the bat striking the ball. To improve the pace of play, while some problems never go away, in 1858, the umpire was instructed to announce strike for a good pitch that the batter should have swung at. It was a mix of, you should have struck that ball, so I'm going to count it as if you did, and perhaps also a hint of impatience to the batter strike the ball already. Today, pitchers aren't lobbing balls in, batters don't call for higher low pitches, and every swing doesn't result in contact. Far from it. But we still have umpires telling players, you should have hit that one. (laughs) So I guess that's a good suggestion. And along those lines, Damon says, the best example of this in my mind is the strikeout. Specifically when it comes to box scores, why is the strikeout denoted with a K when the word starts with an S? The man who invented the box score, Henry Chadwick, decided completely arbitrarily that S would denote a single, which is fair enough, but this left the strikeout with no alphabetical home on the scorecard, so how did he land on the letter K? When baseball was first invented, the term strikeout wasn't in effect. When a batter reached three strikes without hitting the ball, the most common term at the time for the batter being called out was struck. So Chadwick decided on using the last and most striking, no pun intended, letter of struck to denote a player being called out on strikes, thus the K is born. So... That's a a good one, I guess. Strike, strike out. Maybe that works. And there were a couple other suggestions. One was from Sean. Now, he wrote, some smaller college or independent teams will play on artificial turf up here in Wisconsin. I assume it's much cheaper to maintain the natural grass. These fields will sometimes be completely artificial turf, including the quote-unquote dirt in the infield, just being brown turf and home plate white painted turf. Anyway, twice now I've seen an umpire at these games try to give more time to a catcher nicked by an errant foul by walking around to the front of the painted-on plate 
bending down and brushing the plate. Again, there's no dirt on the plate or field at all, and I'm shocked umpires still even carry the brushes for these games. They don't act like there's anything unusual about it, but I suppose after centuries of baseball on natural dirt or grass, we still haven't come up with a good way for umpires to delay the game for a few seconds without drawing undue attention to a catcher that just needs a few seconds to catch his breath. This isn't a strict skewamorph, I know, but this is a vestigial tale of umpire etiquette. I think it still fits the spirit. And I like that one. Yeah. That is uh, an affront against all that is holy, the idea of a a white painted on turf plate. (laughs) That just seems wrong on some fundamental level, but I love that the umpire brushes it off regardless. I mean, look, sometimes you live in a place that has a lot of weather and a lot of moisture in the winter, and you just need to have something hardy. But, you know, you want to observe the protocol. You want it to look like baseball, even if it is, uh, you know, importantly different in some ways. Yeah. But can't you still have a a physical plate, even if it's cold and rainy out? Like a turf plate. Just a, a crime against nature. Something something about that bothers me. Like on the level of Olaf in Frozen, where I see Olaf and I just instinctively recoil. <laughs> it just disturbs me. The idea of this Wait. living snow person. <laughs> it what? scares me. Olaf. I have like a You're afraid Olaf of Olaf allergy. Yeah. Olaf. Just I find him very disturbing. I, I wish he would melt. <laughs> Wait. What? <laughs> I don't know. I just I confessed something here that I don't know if I should have put out in the world. But I mean, we're yeah. definitely going to get emails about it, but that's OK. You don't have to feel ashamed of your. Is it fear? Is it just a very deep seated? He gives you like, like the, the, the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. Yeah. Just something unnatural about Olaf. Well, yeah, I mean, he's an, mind, yeah, he's an like animated he snow person who sings. <laughs> I don't mind, like, uh, you know, sticking the, the pieces of coal and the carrot and the sticks into, yeah. the, into the snowman. That's okay. But when the snowman comes alive, there's also just, like, something just, uh, it feels like, you know, your days are numbered when you're a snow person. You know you're going to melt at some point. So that, it's like a reminder of your mortality, seeing a, a an animated snow person. I don't know if I'm alone in this or if other people are also disturbed by Olaf, but I'm not looking forward to when my daughter is old enough to watch Frozen and I have to confront Olaf. This is what I was about to say. I'm mostly, um, you know, like you are not obligated to like things. And I I think that there are a lot of parents who have objections to Frozen. On other grounds. Right. That are mostly just born of exhaustion. And I I don't fault them for that. But you. Let it go already. Stop singing that Let It Go song. Let it go, please. Yes. But like your daughter doesn't have, I wouldn't imagine, like movie preferences yet. And so I can't imagine you have yet entered the phase of parenthood where you are having to watch the same thing over and over and (laughs) over and over again so you had just seen frozen i mean like it was impossible to not see frozen i think yes i have seen frozen i i uh i was not watching for a kid just for myself (laughs) that snow guy i don't like the cut of his jib no not at all interesting okay (laughs) well so you do not want to build a snowman I guess not. No, mm. we'll we'll find out when Sloane does watch Frozen someday. We'll find out if my aversion to Olaf is heritable or whether this is <laughs> something unique lo- to me. What if she loves Olaf? What if she loves Olaf and wants like a that stuffed Olaf and wants for to me. be yeah. Olaf for Halloween? I mean, you <sighs> don't have to worry about him melting. He lives in a cold place. They're in Norway or Sweden yeah, or you what know. If there's climate change. Well, it's a magical realm. I I think that uh... I'm torn between wanting. <laughs> 
blaming Olaf this is easily to melt because I want him to go away. Conversations we've ever had. <laughs> this isn't even the pedantic about baseball portion of the podcast. This is pedantic about a Disney movie, I guess. Well, there is, <laughs> a thre- there is the threat of him melting in the movie, but then he yeah, gets like right. the magic cloud. So I don't think you have to worry about it, right? Am I misremembering Frozen? I've only seen it a couple of times. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh, I, I mean, the the Frozen is is overrated camp. Regardless, uh, independent of Olaf, but I don't want to get into whole that whole debate. That's there was fine. one more skewamorph suggestion from Brian, who said, "I've long wondered if some players would choose to not wear a hat if it wasn't part of the uniform." In the early days of only daytime games, hats surely played a more necessary role. But with mostly night games and even indoor stadiums, surely they're not as needed, like cleats or batting gloves. Sometimes I. I wonder if the baseball hat is an outlier among all sports equipment slash uniforms for being often pointless yet still required. I can think of a ton of reasons not to wear one. Big hair, uncomfortable, or maybe a player would rather wear a sweatband. Anyway, they seem very skeuomorphic to me, like the candle-shaped light bulb kind of way. Interesting. Well, even even evening games often start at a time of day when there is some light. And you can get the artificial lights in your eyes, too. Right. You can get the artificial lights in your eyes and you can still suffer sun damage even when it isn't, Mm -hmm. you know, noon. So I think that as a, a means of protecting your face in that respect, it's probably still good. But yeah, I'm sure that if people were given the option that there would be players who would elect to to not wear a hat if if they had the option to mm-hmm. but i don't know like i also think that there are players who probably like wearing the hat because sure we don't get to investigate their hairlines. <laughs> that too, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in the pedantic corner, are are bringing up the how can you not be pedantic about baseball? That has opened the floodgates. Aww. It has given the pedants permission <laughs> to email us with their most pedantic observations. And in many cases, I am sympathetic. In some cases, it's too pedantic even for me. I cannot follow them to these extremes of pedantry. For example, we got an email from listener Andrew who said, I have a how can you not be pedantic about baseball question with a headline editing spin, so whom better to ask than you two? Actually, he said who better, and I just amended that to whom better, speaking of being (laughs) pedantic. The MLB.com headline for the Monday, May 2nd White Sox versus Angels game reads, Dylan Cease, K's 11, Sox shut out Angels. This is common parlance, but I would argue it is not true. Though Dylan Cease did have 11 strikeouts, he did not strike out 11 people. Mm. (laughs) He only faced nine Angels batters, and there were some repeats in his total, such as striking out Mike Trout three times. So, he says in reality, Cease struck out only eight Angels batters. Jared Walsh escaped. Can't go with you on this one, Andrew, I'm afraid. (laughs) Technically correct, I guess. He did not strike out 11 batters, distinct, unique batters, but... We have to take each plate appearance as its own entity, right? right? And just for convenience's sake, and I don't think anyone is getting confused by this one, so no. no communication issue here. I think we are just fine saying he struck out 11, and I guess there's an implied he struck out 11 batters or hitters there, but we all know, right? You're a you're a hitter when you come to the plate in that right. plate appearance, and so you can be struck out as a hitter. We would maybe not say that he struck out 11 people. Right. <laughs> no, but but 11 hitters, I think we can say that. I, I get it, but I, I can't go with you on this one. Yeah, I think that we can say that. I'd also say, though, that if they wanted to say, like, records 11 strikeouts, sure. fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But when you're dealing with headlines, you are theoretically interested in communicating 
as much as you can with as much brevity as possible. And yes. so I think that that's why you, you go with K's 11 because yes. we, we know what that means, we right? Do. Plus, yes. you want to save like the individual pitcher does X against Y specific batter for when it's like really, really notable. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it just gets kind of jumbled. So I think, I think it's fine. I think you, yep. can, you can let that one go if you want to. And another one that I was willing to let go was suggested by David, who says, are you guys moderating discussions on other listeners' pedantic baseball bugaboos? Because if so, <laughs> I guess we are. Can we talk about referring to a player as an all-star? All-star teams are so called because all of the players are stars, right? What does it even mean to refer to an individual as an all-star? Is it like that guy is 100% star? Even his pinky toe is star. So I went back and forth with David. This was the greatest thread in the history of forums yeah, locked by a moderator a... after 12,000 yeah, pages of heated debate. So <laughs> we had some correspondence yeah. about this. and Friendly, I don't... productive yeah. correspondence. Oh, yeah. It yeah. was uh, yeah very civil and uh, in enlightened discourse. But uh, he did not convince me that this no. was a problem, and I did not convince him that this was not a problem. I do understand what he means, but I made the point that the teams are literally called Called the All-Stars and that therefore if you were on an All-Star team then you are an All-Star the way that if you were on the Marlins right. then we can You're call a you a Marlin right and uh, that was not, per- <laughs> not persuasive to David either because he doesn't like that we're calling them All-Star teams in the first place and he does concede that the usage of All-Star makes it easier to talk about All-Star games and appearances so <laughs> I think we reached a, a middle ground there and again we all know what we mean this is one of those we know it when we see it kind of conversations i will say maybe a more valid question or or one that uh, i was more sympathetic to this one was about sweeps so aaron patreon supporter says is there an official effectively wild take on sweeping a two-game series many headlines today are dodgers sweep series against giants and while technically yes it was only two games at least to me Sweep terminology should be saved for a series with three or four games. Maybe call winning both games in a two-game series a dusting, as in Dodgers' dust series against Giants. Thoughts? I don't know whether we've weighed in on this before or not, but my answer, and you can tell me if you agree, is that I'm okay with calling anything a sweep beyond a single game, I guess, but I would suggest that a three-game series in the regular season is the default, and so if you tell me that this team swept that team, I will assume it was a three-game series, and that therefore, if it was not any deviation from a three-game series, you should append the number of games yes (laughs) right that should be the prefix here so it should be two game sweep or it should be four game game sweep you should specify that it was not a three game sweep okay yeah i agree with that because i think i i again the base purpose here is that you want to communicate something that is comprehensible to the other person and so Mm -hmm. and i don't know if if everyone has the same base assumption for how many games a series is they probably do i guess i won't assume that but to me when you say series i think three games and so Mm -hmm. if it is different than that it is useful to indicate that for the purposes of clarity yes i agree along those lines Kenny says, sorry, I'm sending this via email, not Patreon, because my question is so meaningless, I'll forget about it if I don't send it now. (laughs) (laughs) Our people! (laughs) I love that. It was like so urgent 
that he had to send it immediately or he would forget it because it was completely meaningless. <laughs> so Our listeners are the best. They're really, you're all so great. <laughs> he says, I'm watching the Mariners-Marlins game this afternoon, Sunday, May 1st, and the Bally's scroll at the bottom of the screen was running through standings. The AL West standings flashed in the following order. So it was Los Angeles on top. And then it was Houston and Seattle with the same record. And it said tied for second. Now, Kenny says, my question is, since there are no longer tiebreaker games and that system has been replaced by a tiebreaker formula, is it correct to say that there is no longer the possibility of a tie in the standings? In other words, one of Houston or Seattle would be ahead of the other and alone in second place should the season end today. So should networks and publications be factoring that in when listing outstandings? Does MLB's website list teams that are tied on record in the correct tiebreaker order? Is all this stupid? And should we just bring back game 163s? And he puts in parentheses, yes. Yes. I guess he has a point here in that technically teams can't be tied for second. Although if we say, I mean, I think there's some utility in listing them that way yeah. just so that we understand, okay, they have the same record, right? Yes. That is useful to know in May. Yes. And I guess you could say that the tiebreaker order would not be determined until later in the year anyway. I mean, I guess the standings aren't either, so. Well, and I don't think that, and this may have changed and maybe I missed it, but remember they were they were still sorting out some of the tiebreaker stuff. Right. I don't even remember what the, the many formula are. But. And I don't know that they have figured it out now either. I mean, I guess one argument, I think that at this point in the year you can denote them as tie because, oh, you got to tell me if this is really annoying. Is this a really <laughs> annoying explanation that I'm about to give? I mean, one can't break a tie if there isn't a tie to begin with. They oh. are tie oh, breaker. Boy. You got a point there. Protocols. So <laughs> I think it's fine to indicate a tie. Yeah, you right. enter. You enter the the room. Yeah, two teams enter. One team leaves. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, and yeah. so you subject them to the tiebreaker protocol, and then at the end of that you emerge without a tie anymore because of yeah. other stuff. Because the yeah. records are the same, and then all of the things that determine what who advances are ancillary to their just straight one-loss record. Right. So I think, I think it's fine yeah. because of all of that. Have I persuaded you, or is that really I think annoying? You, a, you make a fine and pedantic point there. <laughs> I think that's convincing yes. to me. Yeah, the, the tiebreaker now, it's like, it's like the team with the better head-to-head oh, is number so one, long. and then like best overall record in intra-division games, and then best overall record in intra-league games, yes. and then team with the best record in the last 81 intra-league games, and if that somehow doesn't do it, then it's like the team with the best record in the last 82 intra-league games, and then on and on from and there. And then they make them fight, and then they yeah. make them kiss, right. and then they, <laughs> they make them do all kinds of things, and at the end of it, they're like, you get to go to the postseason, and you have to go home. Yeah. So I guess you could factor in where the tiebreaker results would stand now as we do with the standings and say, well, if the season ended today. But I think you're right. I think you're right that uh, you have to have the tie before you can break the tie. And and we want to know who's tied in terms of record anyway, and how else would you list it really without confusing people? So And then I guess they'd probably just do it alphabetical by team after they're tied, right? Yeah, right. Last pedantic question from Josh. 
my email regards something that certainly falls under the umbrella of how can you not be pedantic about baseball, but I can't keep letting it slide. <laughs> I watch the Padres broadcast on Bally Sports, so Bally's the target again here, and any time a batter has passed a threshold of pitches seen during a continuous appearance at the plate, a graphic pops up on the score bug that says, pitches this at bat? colon x right i imagine that this happens on all other bally sports broadcasts and likely a handful of other broadcasts as well more often than not by the time this graphic appears the count on the batter is full so any succeeding pitch could result in a walk at which point the player no longer had an at bat they had a plate appearance this is obviously true as well if the batter is hit by a pitch is out on a sacrifice fly etc if that's the case why doesn't the graphic say something like pitches this plate appearance since then if the batter ends up walking the graphic would still retroactively be true more generally i suppose my question boils down to this is every plate appearance still considered and at bat until it is officially just a plate appearance or is the graphic in question truly a mistake likely a result of the fact that colloquially a player is at bat even even if their plate appearance ends in a walk or a hit by pitch, etc. I'm sure this all means nothing, and I'm likely in just a very small cohort of people who care that this pop-up graphic can be wrong after the fact, but wanted to get some thoughts from the only two people I know who might care about this as well. And I will say I, I am pedantic about plate appearances versus at-bats, yes. and that is an important distinction. Yes. And so often for analytical purposes, you want to be using plate appearances yeah. instead of at-bats yes. and it's especially important, you know, as uh, rates change and strikeout rates go up and walk yeah. rates go up and all of these things change that might not be at bats or whatever in certain years, or you might have uh, more your ratio of plate appearances to at bats could change by the year. So I'm sympathetic to this one. The question of like, when does a plate appearance morph into at bat? When is an at bat official? I guess you could say that like plate appearance starts when the batter is at the plate, right? Like, it's a plate appearance from that point forward. Is it an at-bat later? Maybe it only becomes an at-bat after the plate appearance is over and you know if it ended up being a ball in play or a strikeout or whatever. So I'm sympathetic to the idea that, like, maybe a plate appearance is always a plate appearance, but then maybe it doesn't become an at-bat until later on? Is that reasonable? Yeah, I think that they should say pitches this plate appearance. And I think some some broadcasts do. Like, I think, and now I'm going to have to watch this. Although some of the games that I, uh, the Dodgers are are postponed today. But, like, I'm pretty sure that the Sportsnet LA, like, the the Dodgers home broadcast does pitches this plate appearance. And I think the Mariners broadcast does too. Now I'm going to watch. That seems like the correct... Uh, yeah. way to denote it on the score bug if you're yeah. gonna make a point of showing it because like most right. and most um you have to be making an editorial choice there right because most score bugs don't show that until they're like oh my gosh another pitch this plate appearance and then mm-hmm. they're like in the you know it's the 11th pitch of the but see i was just about to say it's the 11th pitch of the at bat so like hoisted mm-hmm. on my own petard Ben, (laughs) but I think that there are definitely broadcasts that say plate appearance there. That seems like the the more correct approach. Maybe every plate appearance starts out as an at-bat and then... It's like squares (laughs) and rectangles. Yeah. (laughs) Or are they both plate appearances and at-bats and then some of them morph back into being just plate appearances? Or do they morph from being plate appearances into at-bats? I think they morph 
from being a plate appearance into an app. I agree. And yet we will just in an offhand casual way refer to an in progress plate appearance as an at bat. I think that is unavoidable. I mean the sure. player is at the bat. So yeah. I get why we say that. But they appear and... <laughs> but they also appear at the plate. So that is it's true. really a yeah. matter of perspective. Right. What the I guess this is just like why do we prioritize at bats over plate appearance? And it just goes back to like the primacy of batting average, right? Right. And it's because we don't taking view into views... account walks and, and on base percentage yeah. and, and Henry Chadwick. It's all his fault because he put at bats in the, the, the box score instead of plate appearances, right. right? So I guess that is what it is. We are still deferring in that way to the historical supremacy of the at bat. I will say, like, Obviously, space on the Chiron is at a premium. So if you're yeah, going to say- Yeah, but PA versus AB, it's the, you can... that's the same number of characters. Yeah, at bat is shorter than plate appearance. I would say AB is better known to the general populace than PA, I would think. Like that Maybe. even stands in. Like people will even say, oh, he had a good AB, right? You right, know, you right. usually wouldn't say he had a good PA if he drew a walk or something. You, you should, you, you could. But AB is better known. And if you put PA up there- I don't know that everyone would understand it. They'd think like public address. So what are we talking about here? So that is an argument that I find somewhat persuasive because again, we have said like the point of all of this is to communicate mm-hmm. as much as clearly as one can. Yes. But but <laughs> I think it would be fine. You have all that space on the bottom and the ba- you know, the valley ones have the mm-hmm. crawl. So I think that they could probably make room for you know, they could flash plate appearance very briefly and then put pitches this PA up mm-hmm. there. Because, again, it's not like it's a fixed part of the score bug. They're mm-hmm. only doing it when the length of the plate appearance is noteworthy for some reason. So mm-hmm. I think that they should opt for plate appearance. I mean, I think that most people, you're right to say, are more familiar with at-bats. But that's because we don't view walking as work. <laughs> we don't it's looked at, i think we i think that on a fundamental level a lot of fans view it as the fault of the pitcher and so it's charity right it's it mm-hmm. when we're balancing the skills there we balance them toward it being a failure of the pitcher rather than um, a demonstration of some sort of skill right. or you know eye, a keen eye on the part of the the hitter mm-hmm. and i think we should rethink that personally but i think yes. that's the at its core is the fundamental resistance to yep. on base percentage too because we're like well right. you didn't earn that that's charity and you know we're so yeah. skeptical or even getting hit by a pitch which is if that that's a, a big part of the batter too. I mean, it, they take one for the team, but also there is a, a skill to that. So right, I, yeah. which is funny because you you know we imbue so many other things within the you know oeuvre with morality too, like sacrifice. That sounds so noble. You're sacrificing for your team. Mm-hmm. <sighs> anyway, that wasn't <laughs> the point of the question, but you did ask some pedantic people a pedantic yep. question. Now I'm thinking about work yeah, and well. chirons. We're a pro plate appearance podcast generally. Sure, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. You know, since we talked about it, we have heard from a few listeners who've said that they have heard umpires change the phrasing when they announce the replay review results. So instead of saying Miami won their challenge, they'll say Miami won its challenge. Maybe a memo went out, or maybe those umps are effectively wild listeners going rogue. Either way, clearly we're making a difference here, and the pedantry must persist. That's Pedantic Corner. I will end with one non-pedantic question. It's from David, Patreon supporter, who says, I was at a Cardinals game the other day, and while I was watching Yadier Molina leg out a double, Mm. it occurred to me that the Cardinals have the two slowest players by a wide margin in the league in Molina and Albert Pujols. Mm. 
they also have some of the very fastest players yeah. in the league in the form of Edmundo Sosa, Tyler O'Neill, and Harrison Bader. This led me to wonder if the Cardinals have the highest standard deviation of speed in the Ooh. league. I don't even know if the answer to that would be interesting, but I figured I'd throw it out there. I think it's interesting. I think it is too. And it checks out. You are onto something here, David. So all I did, just sort of a simplistic method, was just go to the sprint speed leaderboard at Baseball Savant and export it and throw it into a pivot table and just get the standard deviation by team. And the Cardinals stand out by a wide margin, actually. Mm. So they have a standard deviation of sprint speed of about 25 feet per second and the next highest team is the guardians at 1.9 and then the marlins are also at 1.9 and milwaukee is at 1.9 so there's like a giant gap between the cardinals and the next highest team on the low end you have atlanta at 0.9 so they have the least variation in the speed of their players and yeah the cardinals absolutely stand out in this respect you are seeing some of the fastest and some of the slowest players on display And it has worked out for them, base running wise, thus far. We know that uh, Albert Pujols got caught stealing, right? But Yachty stole a base, right? So it makes news whenever one of them tries to steal a base, whether they're successful or not. But on the whole, the Cardinals have been running wild. It's not quite uh, the 80s Cardinals, the Herzog Cardinals back again, but... They have been the best base running team, or at least the second best by base running runs, best in the National League at 5.4 base running runs thus far. The Rangers are tops in the majors, and the Cardinals are leading the majors in stolen bases with 24, and they've been caught only three times, which is pretty impressive. So it is uh, working out well for them, this mix of super fast and super slow players. Yeah, man, that Cardinals team... I think they're going to sneak up on some people. We're going to look back and we're like, oh, Don't boy. Don't they always? <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. They did it again. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that will do it. Thanks for your skeuomorph suggestions. Thanks for your pedantic questions. Thanks for your <laughs> other just normal We mean normal that in a nice way. <laughs> yeah. We need to like imbue pedantic with warmth because that's yeah. how we mean it. We are like, ah, oh, fellow yeah, travelers. People get that. They know this yeah. is a safe space for pedantic questions. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It's a, it's a pro-pedantry podcast as well. Oh, boy. All right, that will do it for today and for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening. Also, just wanted to relay well wishes to former podcast guest Riley O'Brien. Riley is the grandson of Effectively Wild legend Johnny O'Brien, who has been on the show a couple of times. The second of those times, we had Riley and his granddad Johnny on together. That was a few years ago. Riley was in the Rays system at the time. The Rays traded him to the Reds, and he made his Major League debut for the Reds last year. But just last month, April 17th, the Reds traded him to the Mariners, which works out for Riley in a couple of ways. One, he got to flee the sinking ship, although I guess there are innings available in Cincinnati. But the Mariners are his hometown team because he is from Seattle. Johnny is a Seattle University legend and still is in Seattle as far as I know. So I expect and hope this means that Johnny gets to go see Riley play, which I think is something that we talked about when we had the two of them on the show together. The Mariners just recalled Riley to the majors, so hopefully he'll make his Mariners debut sometime soon, and hopefully Johnny will get to see him. And if so, maybe it'll be time to have him back on. He was in his 80s when we last talked to him. He's 91 now. So when I need another nonagenarian on the podcast, we can call up Johnny again. 
In the meantime, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Jesse R., Jonah Bernhard, Thomas Bennett, Patrick Morgan, and Sam Normington. Thanks to all of you. Our Patreon supporters get plenty of perks. They can join the Effectively Wild Discord group where there's great baseball discussion going on at all hours among our Patreon supporters and not just baseball discussion, discussion of all things. They also get access to monthly bonus pods that I host with Meg and access to a couple of playoff live streams later in the year, among many other extras. Please do check it out. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments, pedantic or otherwise, coming from me and Meg via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. There's an Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks, as always, to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you early next week. 